By the mid-1990s, berry patches and creosote-cured pilings protruding from the waters of Puget Sound were no longer the prevailing features of Bainbridge Island, Washington. Faux chateaux and gargantuan craftsman-style homes had arisen as ubiquitous as strawberry farms and shorefront sawmills had once been. For the old-timers, it was a time of boom and bust. Property values had made rich people out of mobile home dwellers on forested acreage. Weekend beach cottages had long since been raised by Seattle yuppies with lots of money and a scant sense of proportion. Those who grew up on the island lamented that, though their property values had skyrocketed, the friendly rural character of their community was fading. Long gone were the days when everyone knew everyone and chatted while they waited for the ferry to Seattle just across Puget Sound. Connected by Agate Pass Bridge to the Kitsap Peninsula to the north and by the state ferry system to Seattle to the east, Bainbridge was isolated and insular, which was a blessing as far as newcomers were concerned. Islanders hated being part of Kitsap County, the poorest of the major counties around Puget Sound. To resist the influence of a county that allowed chain stores like Walmart to take root, like so many scattered weeds, the entire island incorporated as a city in 1991. It was that kind of insularity and attitude that brought members of Christ Community Church close together and ultimately set tragedy in motion. Many of the Christ Community Church faithful were part of the island's old guard. Families like the Glasses, Clovens, Lagrangers, and Smiths were of somewhat modest means. While some were ferry ticket takers, checkers, house cleaners, or baristas, several, like building contractor Einer Cloven, had their own businesses— Dan Hackney ran an auto repair shop a few doors down from the ferry landing with service to Seattle. Dan and Susie Claflin owned a restaurant. James Glass and his son Jimmy were skilled carpenters. Some congregants, like the Andersons and the Mathesons, lived off the island on tribal land in Suquamish, the birthplace and final resting place of Chief South, for whom the city of Seattle was named. Suquamish was a quick drive over the Agate Pass Bridge. A few miles down the road was Paulsbow, an orderly enclave best known for its Norwegian bakeries, and a marina that, on a summer's day, boasted a rainbow of spinnakers from one side of Liberty Bay to the other. Raised mostly on the outskirts of Paulsbow, Nick Hackney came from a troubled family. Observers would later suggest that Nick had been somewhat neglected as a child in a chaotic household, and that it was that lack of attention that had shaped him more than anything else. He was the fat kid without many friends. He was the one who always tried to be outgoing, but still managed to be a loner. It wasn't until he picked up a Bible and dug deep into the meaning of God's word that he seemed to find his place. It was God's calling, he insisted, that gave him strength and shaped every bit of his character. In his family, he became the rock, the point person for every family calamity. When his brother Todd, a drug addict, was rendered brain dead after being hit by a car on Bainbridge Island— It was Nick who instructed his parents to remove Todd from life support. My parents didn't have the stomach for it, he told a friend much later, but I knew what God wanted. Nick was seen as the strongest and most responsible member of his family. Nick's mother, Sandra Hackney, was a fiercely independent woman who ran a home daycare and took in foster children whenever the spirit moved her, which was quite frequently. Nick would later gripe that his mother favored his brothers, his sister, and even the foster kids over him. I don't think she ever loved me, he told a friend. Actually, I think she hated me. For her part, Sandra Hackney seldom said a cross word about her youngest. Dan Hackney always knew his greatest legacy would be his children, especially Nick. 
Even when he was a little boy, there was no doubt among the Hackneys that Nick was the golden child. He had a backstory that confirmed it. Dan and Sandra Hackney told the story often. Nick recited it too, albeit with a sheepish sense of burden. You have no idea, he told a friend, what it is like to be handed over to God. It was 1970, and Dan and Sandra Hackney were in a state of terror. Nicholas Daniel was turning a deep shade of blue. As the auto mechanic and his wife jumped into the car and drove to a Bremerton hospital, they were sure the youngest of their four children was going to die. At 28, Dan was a rare combination of toughness and gentleness. His hands were never clean, always stained with motor oil from a job that kept food on the table and Sandra washing coveralls. A year younger than her husband, Sandra could be a somewhat sullen figure, given to what some believed were long bouts of depression. She had dark eyes and hair, like Dan and their baby,